0: Well, you know how easy it is for saying songs about where you go, I'll go. Where you want us to go, we'll follow. And we sing it, but we recognize that most of the time it doesn't really mean anything to us. It doesn't usually change the way we live our lives or the things that we do or don't do. So, Father, we pray that you'd help us to be honest before you today, that your word would penetrate our hearts. And, Father, we would be changed and transformed by the power of your Spirit, who continues to point us to the Savior, to lead us into green paths where we can grow and nourish, that we might be able to encourage others. As we come to this passage, we ask that you'd be with us. Encourage us, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a story that's told from back years ago in Holland that they had a terrible storm, which is nothing new in that area, but they had a terrible storm that came in. And it was a boat that most of the boats had gotten into the harbor before the worst of the storm came, but one boat was further out and could not get in. And so they were working very hard to try to stay alive, but they were starting to run low of gas, or well, petrol, whatever it is, to keep them going. And of course, the issue was that once at the time, you just find you, know, you can't keep the boat running anymore, you're in real trouble for being, you know, killed and dying, drowning. And so what happened is there was a situation that went on shore. They had gotten the SOS thing saying, we need help. We need to get in. We're running low of fuel. Will you come get us? And immediately there at the harbor, there was a large boat. They had a boat that was made just for that reason, to be able to go out and help mariners that are trying to come back in. But it launched a huge discussion. It was not a normal kind of storm. It was just a terrible storm that was going and raging on. And it didn't seem like it was going to quit. And the question came is, what do we do? If we try to go out and help these poor guys that are out there, there's a good chance we're all going to die. And so maybe the right thing to do is to recognize and just tell them, I'm sorry, we can't help you. And so this discussion there at the harbor while this whole storm is going on is going back and forth and back and forth. And finally, the guy who was the, seemed to be the oldest and the guy who was in, seemed in charge, he got up and says, men, I want to tell you something. We don't need to come back, but we do need to go out. And that was the decision. We may not come back, but we're going to do everything we can to rescue these men who are out on the sea. That idea of recognizing we don't have to come back, but we have to go out, is going to reappear again as we get near the end of our passage. But for right now, let me ask you to go ahead and turn in, if you would, in your Bible to hear, if you haven't already, in Matthew chapter 28. If you've been with us, you know we've been doing a series, we call it the Seven Sundays in Spring, where we've been looking at the other things that happened around the time, because when we were studying the Gospel of Mark, it ended in that strange way, you know, and they were afraid. And... We had things saying, I wish we had more knowledge of what happened during that incredible moment when Christ rose from the grave. And what we have here is in these other passages in Matthew and Luke and John give us a full, fuller idea of what had actually happened. And so what we have here this morning in the context, of course, is where I read it just a little while ago, is the fact that Mary and Mary Magdalene and another Mary had been there, and they had seen Jesus, and they came back. And seemed to be that they had then came back and they told the disciples that the fact they had met Jesus and they worshipped him and they, they touched, they like, hugged his feet, it sort of sounds like. And he was there for a moment and then he was gone. But he gave them a thing. He told them, he said, go up to Galilee and I'll meet you there. And then he was gone. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to focus on only five verses. The last five verses of the Gospel of Matthew. It won't take more than one minute to read it. I'm reading in chapter 28 of Matthew, verse 16. The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Then Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. This is a well-known passage. There's a problem with this passage, not with the passage, not with the scripture. The problem is with us. And that, as many of us have said through many, many times here in this passage, particularly if you grew up in the church and you had, you know, missions, meetings and mission conferences, and you've heard this again and again, there's a real danger of overexposure. We've heard it so many times. We go, yeah, yeah, have been there, done that, you know, got the T-shirt. What's next kind of going on? When are we going to eat kind of deal? And that's a problem with a passage like this, because it's a short passage, it's only five verses, and yet those five verses are very significant. And I'll be the first to admit, there's no way in the 30 minutes I usually try to preach that we're going to go through in five verses and get all that this passage has. It is such an incredibly filled, powerful passage. What we do want to do is I want to look at like five major themes that sort of resonate in this passage, taking it from maybe like a different tack that I normally would go through with that. And by the way, you should have here with you, around you somewhere, what I did is I put these five themes up there. Faith, worship, doubt, authority, and presence. And you might find that helpful as we're going through. Because what I want to do is be able to talk about why do they, where are these five themes, where do they come from, what's significant about them. And so what we want to do is look at the very first one, which is faith, and be very clear with you, this first theme is really not explicit. It's more implicit. Look, if you would, in verses 8 to 10. It said, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. Okay, let's just stop for a minute and think about that. The first theme, the first question is, it says, the 11 disciples traveled. The question that's gone along is, is, you wonder, what were they thinking at this time? What was going on in their mind? Now, remember, Mary Magdalene, and the other Mary, had seen Jesus. It seems like the apostles and some, maybe, of the followers had also seen him, at least briefly. And what's going on here is Jesus tells them, okay, I'm going to meet you in Galilee. Now, even as we're going to see in the very, now down we get to the area of doubt, I have to think that there's some people going, are we seeing things? I mean, is this really real? I mean, you know, we had a couple women tell us that, you know, they saw the risen Jesus, but you know how women are. I mean, women aren't even, in their culture, not even allowed to be in a court of law because you couldn't trust what a woman would say. And you wonder if people are going, really? And he said, yeah. People say, yeah, let's go. He told us to do it. Yeah, you know, do you know how long it is from here in Jerusalem to get to where we're going to meet him at the Sea of Galilee? Yeah, 70 miles, and we're going to walk. It's going to take five, six, seven days, depending how long you walk and what happens along the way. And so you start wondering, are there people saying, you know, I'm not sure about this. You know, it all happened here in Jerusalem. Um, You know, this is where he died. He had ministry here and, you know, with where we've seen him. And, you know, we know he gave that thing about going to Jerusalem, I mean, going up to Galilee, but I'm not really sure. It's interesting to wonder how many of them actually went. It's certainly that some of them did. And what's interesting here, you see that they did 70 miles walking, and it's a remarkable sign of faith on the part of the apostles and the others. And to their credit, you know, they were willing to do that. They were, as some important person, but they wanted to put feet to their faith. And they walked 70 miles with the hope that there they were going to meet Jesus. And it is important, of course, that we know throughout the scriptures that God is looking for faith in the part of his people. And right here, you've got a great example, where here you've got 11 disciples and a lot of other people who are more on the fringe, who are the followers, who aren't absolutely disciples, but there are people, too, that are saying, okay, I'm willing to go for it. We saw Jesus. It may have been very brief. We only saw him for a moment, but he told us to go. We're going to go. And so they walked 70 miles there with the hope that God uh, God would do what he said he would, Christ would do what he said he'd do, and he'd meet him there. So the first one is faith of the five things that we're going to be looking at. You have this implicit faith. They're willing to follow the command of Jesus, even though that's going to be difficult. The second thing that we see in this passage is, I hate to say use this phrase, it's sort of a duh passage, in the sense of it's about worship. And what's interesting here, the theme here of worship is so important because you know, we are tempted to say, well, of course they worship. I mean, if Jesus came in the room right now and stood right here, Would there be any of us here who would not worship him? I mean, I hope all of us would. I think we would. I think we'd be on our knees before him. And we saw in that passage, going back in verse 9, that they worshipped him. And now it's repeated a second time where it said, when they saw him, they worshipped. And we all read that and go, "Uh uh-huh, I got it. That's great. That's no problem. I understand that. There is an issue. Who are these people? Who are these disciples? They're Jews. What do the one things that Jews believe? That there is one God. Okay, look at this right here. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one. The Lord our God, the Lord God is one. That is, the one thing they learned from being sent out into the nations was when they came back. They were absolute monotheists, that is, there is only one God. Not two gods, not five gods, not a hundred gods. There's only one God. Okay? That they got right. Okay? They learned a very, very terrible lesson when the temple was destroyed and they were scattered among the nations. When they came back, particularly that group through Nebuchadnezzar, excuse me, um, came back to the land, they were monotheists. There's only one God. But this brings a real question, okay? It says the question here is, they worshiped him. Who were they worshiping here in the passage? When they saw him, they worshiped. They're worshiping Jesus. Which raises a question, are we worshiping Jesus or are we worshiping God, the Father? Are we by that is, we believe in two gods, and don't even bring the Holy Spirit in, because then we'd have three. But at least here, don't we worship two gods? And what's fascinating in this passage is it makes it very clear in the Scriptures. It said, there at Mount Sinai, when God gave the law, you shall have no other gods beside me. Okay? Got it. Heard it. And we're worshiping Jesus, right? Yes. I thought we were supposed to be worshiping God in heaven. We are. Well, I can do the math. I'm not that dumb. If there's one here and there's one here, that's two. So are we bi-theists? No, we're not. What are we then? We are worshiping Jesus because we realize Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God, but he is God that's truly human. You can see already in this early passage a dilemma that the early Christians had to deal with. Wait a minute. God the Father is God. Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit's God. But we believe in only one God. The doctrine of the Trinity is the most distinctive thing in the Christian faith, and it's also one of the most difficult things to understand, that there's one God in three persons, not Nanny, Moe, and Jack, or Bob, Susan, and Frank, or something, but there's threeness in the oneness of God. And even in these early days, these early weeks in the Christian church, they're dealing with the issue of who is Jesus and related to the Father. And it's here they understand, like Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seeing my Father. Because if you're seeing Jesus, you're seeing God. You may not be seeing physically with your eyes, but the point is, you're recognizing that Christ, who has come, is fully human and fully God. And of course, that was going to take literally four to five centuries before all that was thought out by the Christians. But here it's important to recognize worship was a critical aspect of this passage. Worship of Jesus, knowing that worshiping Jesus was the same as worshiping the Father. And so it's an important experience for him. Okay, So first of all, faith number two is worship. Number three is doubt. This is an amazing phrase, but some doubted. Now, I am so glad that when Matthew was writing this passage, He did not have an editor, because any editor at that point would say, whoa, 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 we're going to scratch this baby out. We want people to know that we believed in Jesus, and we've got it, and we believe in him, and who put this part in about here about some doubted? Well, God put it in there, is their answer. But this would be seen as an embarrassment. Are you trying to say there's people who actually saw the risen Jesus touch them? and yet there's people like that who they saw all that, experienced all that, and yet they doubted? This passage, I thank God that he gave it to us. In many ways, this passage is a gift to us as as believers. It's saying, wait a minute, if people who literally saw Jesus, touched him, worshipped him, held his feet, and they doubted, I guess it's okay for me to doubt sometimes. And I do. And I'd be willing to bet most of you in this room do. Doubt is something that seems to come with the Christian faith. And it seems strange, but it's a reality for many people. And many people get really freaked out about it. And yet, if you look over church history, some of the greatest, most remarkable men and women you've ever found are men and women that struggle in faith. You look at somebody like Charles Haddon Spurgeon, England's greatest pastor and preacher, deep struggles in faith. There's times where he wondered whether he believed the whole thing, and he felt like he was in a, in a battle in that sense for faith, to believe that God is what he was. Of course, there's many others. Many people think of Mother Teresa, a woman of incredible faith. You may remember, when she passed away, they published her writings that she wanted not to be taken out, I mean, not published until after she was dead. It found out she had terrible struggles with faith. At times, she doubted the whole Christian deal. She wasn't sure. And it is amazing to think, Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, he struggled at times, many times, what was going on. And at times, he just talked about how hard it was to be able to follow God and to really to believe. You know, it is tough, and it is difficult, but really, in many ways, God can use us in those times of doubt to strengthen our faith. We talked about number one, faith. God wants us to have faith, but he realizes we are frail. We're like the flower of the grass that's here today, and then it's gone. And we have times where we struggle, and it's hard, and it's still the same today. Many of you know Rick Warren. He may be the most well-known pastor in America today. His wife, Kate, is a remarkable woman, too. Um, it was interesting. About a year ago, she gave a very interesting interview with an atheist, a woman who's an atheist. And the atheist, they asked her this question. You know, I know you and your husband travel the world, and you've got Saddleback Church, one of the biggest, most progressive churches in the country. And, but do you ever question that maybe this, could not, this might not be true? And it was fascinating what she said. She said, "I do struggle with that sometimes." Listen to what she said. I'm trying to take what she said here. She said, "You know, there are times where I say, you know, well, if you're there, God, are you really or or are you just moving us around like pawns on a chessboard?" And remember, she's giving an interview to an atheist woman. And she says, "And there are other moments uh, you know, like uh, I'm not even sure that you're there, God." Maybe, maybe I'm only talking to myself and I'm, you know, uh, I'm, maybe there's nothing up there. Maybe it's all emptiness. Absolutely, said said, I'll, I'll admit to that. And you go, really? This is Rick Warren. This is his wife, who's this incredible woman. Even she is willing to say as much as she's seen, and seen so much, and traveled the world with her husband. She admits that she struggles at times to think, is this true? Is this real? Is this kind of thing where we want to believe it so we all believe it together? And she struggled with it. Of course, as many of you are worried about, what happened just a couple months ago with the loss of their son. I have to wonder now, what is she doing now? How is she coping with this now when she's already had so many great doubts going on? What does she think now about what God is and what God is doing? We probably ought to be praying for her. She's already been honest enough to say she does have doubts. And now they've gone through a terrible thing with their family, and we need to keep praying for them. But you know, it's interesting here that this, is, this doubt comes up a lot, and I hear people talk to me about how hard it is, and it can be hard. Some people, I've met a couple people who tell me I've never doubted, and I doubt it, to be honest. I, I don't know. It just seems to me, there's just, you go through enough things in life where at times you go, is this really real? Is there really a God who cares for me? I think the fact that God made sure that that, this part of the passage came into the scriptures as a gift to us, saying, you're right, you're weak, you'll struggle, there'll be times that you're not even really unsure that you love me or know me, it's okay. Now, one thing we've got to be careful about, you can go the wrong direction with this. There's some people that seem delight in doubting. It kind of gives them an opportunity to say, well, I I do this, but I can't because I'm doubting uh-uh, that, that, that's, that's a cop-out. But the reality is we're called to be able to do this. It's interesting, um, Frederick Buchner, who's a very popular writer, at least years ago, he talked about the fact that doubt is reality. And he said, but there is a purpose for it. There's some good things that come out of doubt. He's a clever writer. Here's what he said. Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. Okay, Let me read it again. Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. In other words, those doubts make us realize, do I really believe this? Do I really have a strong faith in Christ? Christ is calling us to grow in our faith. Together as a community, as individuals, we're asking God to help us to grow, to serve him. And he's saying there is a point of it. And so I am grateful. Doubt, but some doubted. And I'm glad that God put us there because it's a reality. Let's go down to the next one, the next one down here. This is one of the most significant ones. It's the issue of authority. All authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. And the key word that comes up here, four, maybe five, maybe three, depending on your translation, is the word all. All scripture, excuse me, all authority has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciple of all nations, Baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all. Actually, my translation has everything, the same theme. All, everything I've commanded you. And I am with you always to the ends of the age. One of the great teachings we get from the Old Testament is that God is king. He rules over the nations. We're not living in a chaotic world where it's like, oh, we're going to wring our hands. What's going to happen? There is God who is king, and he controls this world. And we don't have to understand all that, but we have a God who loves and cares for us, who gives us the strength to be able to get through this. Abraham Kuyper, many of you may be familiar with his name. He's a famous uh, Dutch scholar and Christian. And he was at a conference and he, at a university, and he was speaking. And he had this statement that became very popular. You hear it in different venues. Kuiper said this, there is not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus does not cry out, this is mine, this belongs to me. When I was a kid growing up, one of the songs we sang, This is my Father's world. Actually, they sang it better than that, but you got the idea. This is my Father's world. I don't don't want to forget that. And it's easy in times of sorrow, in times when we're struggling, to forget that we have a good Father who is King of this earth. He is King. He has come. He has established His kingdom. His kingdom is growing, and we can continue to grow in Him. At the bottom of your handout, by the way, there's a great passage in Daniel chapter, uh, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. And it's a passage, again, which is in the Old Testament, right near the end of the Old Testament. And in it, it's talking about the fact that God the King is going to bring one like him. Let me just read that passage in case you don't have it before you. I'm reading from Daniel 7, 13 to 14. I continued watching in the night visions, And I saw one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancients of days. We take that as referring to God the Father. He approached the ancients of days, and it was escorted before him. He was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. 400 years at least before Jesus. Daniel is given by God the understanding that there's one that's coming, who has power, who has authority who is going to rule, and his dominion's going to be an everlasting dominion, will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. And so we talk about the fact that believers, we are in the kingdom now, waiting for the ultimate coming of that kingdom, when Christ will return and set all things straight, and then the whole th- thing that's going to happen, the new heavens and the new earth. And it's so important here to see in the same saying, because Christ is who he is, because God is who he is, he has the right to tell us what we are going to do. Frederick Dale Bruner is another terrific commentator in the Gospel of Matthew. He's trying to describe what Jesus is doing here in this passage, and he does it sort of in a military kind of way. So David, think about this, a military guy giving orders. And so what he refers to Jesus here as mission commander. Okay, so keep this in mind. He says there's three things here. Quote, number one, mission commander. Here's the quote. I, Jesus, am in complete charge around here. In other words, get that straight. Mission commands, number two. So you, move out, disciple, baptize, teach. In other words, get going. Here's what you need to do. Mission commander number three says, I, Jesus, support you as you go. All the time. And I love this last phrase. So relax and enjoy. That's not what you expect him to say, but the point is when you're in the will of God doing what he calls you to do, there is joy and there is life and you can relax in the fact that we have a God who our life is in his hands. What a better place can you be than secure in the hand of the Lord Jesus? It's what his point is saying that God has called us to be people that hear his command who are willing to go. You know, we've heard about the Great Commission, but you've also heard about the fact that many people refer today as the Great Omission. It used to be that America was the primary, primary, is that the right word, primary? That's not the wrong word, close enough. It was the major sending group around the world for missions. That's probably changed. It's probably going south um, and continuing to move west. And it's a shame because in many ways, we were the nation that seemed to do the best in sending out missionaries. And that seems to be coming to an end. On the other hand, there's amazing things that are happening in technology that could have a huge impact on what's happening. Where before we had to send missionaries to places in deep dark Africa and all the places, it's like, man, these people, they're online. Around the world, people are getting connected People, Darrow's been working with people who are calling up, leading people to Christ on the phone. Is that maybe the best way to do it? I don't know. God can tell us that. I mean, there's still going to be a place where we're having to disciple people and deal with them. But the point is, we have unprecedented, unprecedented opportunities in our generation to have an impact for the kingdom of God. And so on the one hand, we might feel like, oh, America's going down the hill. Look what's happened with the country. Look what's happened with the economy. Maybe that's all true. Maybe our great time is over. But the reality is God's kingdom is not over. God is not dependent on America. He's not dependent on me or you. The reality is, is God can work in just amazing ways. John Calvin put it this way. He said, the gospel does not fall from the clouds like rain by accident, but it's brought by the hands of men to where God has sent it. There's still a role for each of us. When God tells us to go, that may mean going across the street. It may be going to the water fountain. It may be going to the person in your co-op or the person that you meet who's the neighbor. For others, it may be you need to go, literally, get on a plane and go or someplace where God would lead you. But the point is, we have to go. Here at Grace Redeemer, we have to recognize that we've got to be involved in what God is doing. If we're not, we're not doing what we've been called to do. Uh, And it's important to us. Like the story of that about the guys going out in the boat, they don't have to come back, but they have to go out. And that's the same for us. We don't have to come back, but we have to go. When he tells us to go, it means to go. It means to share the good news. To do that, not do that, and saying, "Okay, you're out of God's will. He's calling you to gracefully and in a way to be able to use by God to make a difference in the lives of people. You'll notice in the back of your bulletin, if you haven't already, they have a little thing there that tells us who are the three groups or people that we are working with right at the moment. We get regular monthly uh, checks. The groups, if you remember, is Abbasi's, you know, Nabi Abbasi, and by the way, I just got a thing uh, uh, saying yesterday that he's coming, he's going to be here on June 16th. He's a remarkable guy. His wife is even more remarkable, and don't tell him I said that, okay? But they are an amazing couple that God has been using in Jordan in a great way, and they've been very involved in what's happening in Syria, working with people, very much like uh, Tom Doyle, who was here with people who are fleeing Syria. So he will be, and we have a privilege, as a congregation, of helping them. The other one, of course, is Philip and Gabrielle the Gibsons, that many of we know, Keith's brother. Um, Working in India in one of the most difficult places you can imagine, among the poorest, the lost. Unbelievable. I I just have respect for people that can go into a place like that. And I think after 10 minutes, I'd be heading for the airplane. We thank God that there's people like that, that God calls into that kind of ministry. The other one is one that most of you are familiar with. That's Alarm, uh, what's his name? Celestin, Celestin Musakare. I can never get his name right. I wish it was Bob. That would help me every time. Celestin Musakare is a remarkable guy, African who back, went back to Africa in the time of the Hittus and the Tutsis, or Tutsis were fighting each other and killing each other, he was there bringing reconciliation among the tribes. And that's what they continue to do, a reconciliation ministry in Africa, which is having great results. And so it's a privilege for us to be able to be involved with these people. As many of you are aware, of course, we're also involved in helping out where we can with ISIs, International Students Incorporated. And I'm really hoping and praying that you, if you haven't already been doing this, that you'll be getting to think now about the fall. Students are going to be coming back in early August, mostly Dara, early August coming back. And we've got great opportunities of being friendship partners with these people. Our family has really been blessed by having these two young women in our home and being with them, caring for them in sometimes very significant ways. And I know there's a number of families that are doing this, but if you haven't done this, I want you to really think about this and pray about it. Would God have me, uh, and maybe you're saying, well, I'm single, I can't do it. Well, maybe pair up with somebody else. And How about the two of us go in together and we'll care for this guy or for this woman and help them. Help them see, for one thing, another side of America. Help them to be able to plant the seed that they would come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And here we are. I'm really hoping that we continue to be somewhere around this area, around UTD. I mean, 20,000 students, a big portion of them from around the world. We talk about going, they're coming. They're coming here. You can walk from here to where they're at. And What an opportunity this is. Um, as you may, may be aware, there are several women in our church that are already praying for Asian Christian, excuse me, for Asian American Baptist Church, which is right across the road up here on the other side of the entrance, of, over there at UTD, praying that God would bless that church in such a mar- remarkable way that they got to sell it to people like us. <laughs> now that may sound crazy, but Jesus said, "You ask not, but you have not, because you ask not." It's a good church. Uh, ben Wang is a um, DTS grad. Uh, they're having a good ministry. Uh, from what I'm told, though, they're not particularly involved. Uh, maybe I'm wrong with that Dara, but I'm told they were not per- just a little bit involved. I want that church, okay? Uh, and God may absolutely say no, but let's just maybe pray that it does so unbelievably well in growing that they need to find another facility north of here. And they said, you know, how about if we sell it to you for a dollar? That'd be even better. (laughs) What would even be better is if they did it to us for free, because that's when everything our life's been about is about free in this church. And partially kidding, but partially not. Is our God big enough? Is he great enough? Do we settle for minor things and small things when he wants to do great things among us? Now, don't go running over and tell him my pastor wants your church. I'm going to go meet with him, Lord willing, this week. And I'm going to bring it up with him. And he might just think I'm the dumbest idiot that he's ever met. That's okay. I'm not asking that they go down. I'm asking that they would thrive and go terrifically and grow and give us the building. That's the other thing. part. But all kidding aside, you know what? He's given us the call to go. Wouldn't that be just like God to allow us to be here, to have an impact in the lives of hundreds of young men and women? Many of them going home, knowing Christ, serving Christ. We have to go. We have to bring the, God, the gospel to them. Real quickly, the very last one. And remember, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Abraham was told to go, not knowing where he was going, but God was with him. Joseph thought he was not, had nobody cared for him, but God was watching over him. The Israelites left and went over, you know, through the Red Sea. He gave them the way to understand what was going on. That night there would be the flame, that day there would be the cloud. His presence would be with them forever. And that's what he was left. It's one of the great, great promises of the scriptures. And remember, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And one day, we'll be in his presence. No more sorrow. No more pain. No more cancer. No more evil. No more death. And we'll be that forever. Jesus tells us to go. He doesn't tell us that we're going to come back, but he does tell us to go. Our Father, we thank you for this passage and your goodness to us. We pray, Father, that you would do great things among us, and when that happens, that we would give you all the praise and all the glory. Be with us and encourage us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.